You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. You realize that God does some of his best work with dead people. You know that, don't you? Scripture teaches us that once we were dead, now we're alive, and we're only alive because of Jesus Christ. And everybody in here prior to coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior, and, and, I'm, and I'm not making a blanket statement like everybody in here is saved, so please don't hear that because I don't know your spiritual condition. Really, only God knows your heart. He's the only one that, that knows what's going on on the inside. And so you may be in here and not have that relationship, but if you do have that relationship with Jesus Christ, understand that once you were dead, now you are alive. Once you were destined for hell, now you are destined for heaven. There is a vast difference between somebody who knows Christ and somebody who doesn't know Christ. Please hear that. Because what I see in a lot of places, and, and you've been to churches, you've been different places, and you see people that get really riled up about certain things, and yet at the same time become very solemn and stoic when it comes to pronouncing life in Christ. Let me ask you a question. If, if today resembled what it was like last night at the game, and we talked, you know, that really, the game between Duke and Carolina is not life and death. You may go, oh yeah, it is. I got news for you. They will play again. And so there is a renewed hope for what? How many days from now? Some of you probably have it down to hours. Come on. For some of you, there's, there's renewed hope just down the road. And so that's going to carry on. And if Jesus doesn't come back, and, and it's likely that even if Jesus does come back, Duke and Carolina will play. My hope is that if Jesus comes back, you're not part of that audience. You're part of a different audience. So, so when we talk about that, why is, why is worship, when we're talking about life, in real life, and this whole idea of belonging to Jesus, why does it look as if we're in a um, we're in a very solemn assembly as opposed to in a stadium? Because we're not comfortable enough to get crazy. Maybe it's the dress. Maybe if maybe we need to come up with a like church color that we can all wear with a logo. And, and maybe that would do it. Now, I, I want to go, and we, we have a choir, and we have a praise band, so it's like we've got a band, right? And, and if we want to go really, and I'm going to make a, a statement here, so please only hear, please hear what you need to hear out of this, but, but if the choir represented Cameron Crazies, then, then it ought to reflect that, right? They, the choir can't be up there going, I love Jesus. 
You know, it's, it's got to be a little bit more than that. So if we, if we go that direction. But our lives ought to reflect the, the life that we have in Christ. And so many times our life does not. Because we go through the same circumstances as other people who don't have a relationship with Christ. And yet our reflection of that, of the circumstances in our life with Christ, ought to be different from everybody else. We ought to look different, act different, respond differently. That ought to be who we are. That ought to be our DNA because of life in Christ. If our life in Christ has no effect on the way we live life and we do it just like everybody else, is that life real? Or are you just playing the game? Just going through the motions? Because if it's just going through the motions, then we can question and say, do I really have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have I really surrendered my life to him? Because it comes down to surrender. God did not call us to just kind of come alongside him. He called for surrender. He didn't call for half-hearted allegiance. He called for full allegiance. And so our lives have to be wrapped up in who we are, our identity. That's what we talked about last week. We started getting into the book of 1 Peter. We said Peter was this guy, this, this apostle who knew Jesus personally, hung out with him. And challenged Jesus a couple times. And it was put in some positions that were pretty interesting. Like, Jesus, don't wash my feet. And, and Jesus responded, if I don't wash you, then you have no part with me. Now, I'm not going to deny you. Oh, by the end of the night, yeah, you'll deny me three times. You know, Jesus and, Jesus and Peter had some conversation. And we could, we could nail down and say, yeah, Peter was a, a great victor in certain things. And at other times, he was a complete failure. Last week, we talked about this group of people that Peter was writing to. Because Peter having been through life with Christ and part of that inner circle, knew Jesus probably as good as anyone, and yet still failed. He spent time with him, learned a lot of things, stretched his faith into some really, um, in some really key areas of his life. And, and although he may have been the most outspoken disciple, he was the one that seemed that we seemed to get this magnification of his failure and understand that Jesus loved him in grace regardless. So Peter writes to these exiles that are distanced from the familiar surroundings and, and are residing in Asia Minor. They're exiles because of persecution. And so they end up getting pushed out of, essentially out of Rome. And really, they're just getting away from persecution. Although, if you really follow the, the, the trend, that area was still part of the Roman Empire. And so all the, all the things that go with that, like outskirts, um, outskirts of persecution, if you will, were still there. You couldn't get away from the attitude. So the attitude of leadership, of Nero's leadership, is going to pervade the whole entire empire. So it's not like they could completely get away. They could get away to a certain extent. And they got away from the immediate danger. But they're put in this place that is unfamiliar and tough and scary. And yet they're supposed to live like Jesus is alive. All of us 
go through times in their life where the surroundings, our circumstances are scary and unfamiliar. They're not comfortable at all. They put us in places where we hesitate to take the next step. And these folks were in that same spot. They were maybe hesitant to take the next step. Do I need to get to know my neighbor? Because if my neighbor is really a Roman allegiant kind of person, will they persecute me? Do I even need to get to know them? And so there could be this, that was strange. I don't know what that was, but it was weird. It wasn't the voice of God because it was too high. So, I don't know. So, so when we talk about Peter's letter to these exiles, um, we have to understand that Peter understood grace, and he was trying to get them to understand grace and their identity. We talked about three points last week. Believers need to recognize or must recognize the cultural tension. They knew the cultural tension they were in. But they also needed to realize their biblical identity. They needed to know who they were in Christ. And, and that may be the point that we need to grasp more than anything from last week is that if our identity is in Christ, then the, the literal identity that we have here on this earth is, is, should, should pale in comparison to who we are in Christ. Third thing from last week is believers must reside in applied grace as we understand they that the Holy Spirit does a sanctifying work in us, that Jesus gave his life and shed his blood for us, and that we can live in obedience. And all that comes under the heading or the umbrella of grace bestowed on us through a Father, Abba Father, who loves us immensely. John Newton was an English Anglican pastor but he was also a former slave ship master. He was, um, he was an abolitionist after his conversion to Christianity, but not immediately. In fact, he, he accepted Christ and continued in slave trade for, for a time and was convicted by the Holy Spirit that that was the wrong side of that equation to be on. Newton, like the apostle, in several ways. He could have been labeled as a failure, could have been labeled as a racist, as a heathen. And really, we could label ourselves in a lot of, with a lot of those terms and maybe other terms. We may not like any of those. But we could be labeled. But like some of us, the phrase, but God, comes into play. You know, if it weren't for the phrase, but God, we would be destined for hell. Because that's essentially what Scripture says, is that you deserve hell, but God. You deserve punishment, but God. You deserve the, the penalty of your sin, but God. <clears throat> the but God phrase changed Newton's life. This is what he wrote. Our righteousness is in him. And our hope depends not upon the exercise of grace in us. Now listen to this, because if you don't read it, listen to it very carefully, you may get confused in this. Not upon the exercise of grace in us, but upon the fullness of grace and love in Him. 
and upon his obedience unto death. You know, there's different ways you could have read that. You could have said, wait a minute, it's grace in me, and it's about my obedience. Now, it's really about the grace that comes through Jesus Christ applied to you. And his obedience, Jesus' obedience unto death so that that sacrifice could be made on our behalf. We can't save ourselves. We have no part in doing that and we can't preserve ourselves as well. In fact, you may, as we look at that and think about grace from John Newton's perspective, you may recognize the name, and, and Wayne, you would certainly know that what John Newton did, um, he wrote a hymn that's kind of familiar. Anybody know what it is? Amazing Grace. So now take the story of John Newton and apply the words of Amazing Grace to it and see where you come out. See, if he didn't understand what it looked like to have a relationship with Christ and how it could completely turn his life 180 degrees from where he was headed. He was one of the major influencers in William Wilberforce's life. And you know, he was, he was one of those vocal guys in the middle of parliament that spoke up against slavery. It changed a lot of things as we allow God's grace to be applied to us and we surrender to who God is and what he is doing in us. As believers, our identity in Christ must be in the forefront. Remember at the very last of last week, we said that um, Peter wrote in the last part of verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, or may grace be yours, grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. Then Peter goes on in verse 3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We need to stop there for a moment. What does it mean or what is the significance of the term born again? Look at this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Is that a familiar phrase to you? Should be. We, we find it in that conversation, conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, don't we? You must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, oh, wait a minute. That's altogether too weird and gross for me. Explain. And Jesus talks about the difference between being born of the flesh and born of the Spirit. To, to be born again is, is an interesting phrase for us. It means that we get a new start or a fresh start to our life. So I could ask you the same question that, that's on the table here. Have you been born again? Because that means... That means accepting the fact that you are a sinner and, and you sin. And I don't know that anybody in here would really argue that point. We all mess up. Likely, we've messed up in the last 24 hours. But, but it's easy to say, okay, I fall into that category. So what? Well, the sin is cause for penalty. 
the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So if we understand, yeah, we sin, and we can't save ourselves, we can't make up something that would, that would take care of that penalty, not on our own, but God has provided a gift for us, a way for us to have an eternal relationship with God the Father that takes away the penalty of sin and grants us forgiveness and freedom. We get the chance to, to make a choice as the Holy Spirit convicts us and says, yeah, I invite you and this is what you need to do. We get to respond to that. And so Peter, in here he says, he has, according to his great mercy, God's mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live in a culture that's, that thrives on new starts, don't we? We want the clock to end last night and be done. But those that are on the losing part of that equation from last night are waiting for the clock to start again in another matchup. We, we look for new starts when we leave a job and we say, I hated that job and I needed to move on. We look forward to the day where we move into this new job with new things and a fresh start. Where all the office products are new to us again. If you're an office like pen junkie kind of, kind of person, you're going, all right, I get to start out with a whole new set of pens or you know, whatever that looks like. New starts are part of our part of our life. And yet we we tend to we tend to lose the defining moments that God gives us because sometimes we're not willing to stay in the middle of the mix long enough to figure it out. Now, hear me what I'm saying. Every time you change jobs or a game starts, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But there are some things that we need to stick out long enough to see what God's going to do in them and allow God to work. And you may go, I'm pushing back on that. Maybe I can put it in these terms. Don't run away from something that God wants you to stay in. Only move as God leads you to go somewhere that he's leading you to. Don't run away. Only move if God's calling you to move. couple of examples of this may be a, a husband and wife and, and their marriage where there's just stress in the marriage. If we ran away from the stress of marriage every time that there was stress or an argument or, a, or fussing that goes on, I don't know that anybody in here would be married. Um, there's, in, in fact, you, it may be in the bulletin, I'd I got to confess, I didn't study the bulletin, okay? Um, but you can look at it. If I'm not mistaken, there is a 60th wedding anniversary celebration this afternoon, right? Yeah, you don't go through 60 years without some fussing. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that I've met. I, I've met like one or two couples in my life that said, yeah, we've never had an argument. And I was like, you lie. Ain't no way. And, and some of us are really good at arguing. You may go, oh, we argue all the time. And we're proud of it. 
You know, you know God, God brings you together, but if every time there was a stress in that marriage, you walked away from it, it would not be good. Your, your spouse is there to refine you. I know, y'all are going, well, Deb, keep working, babe. You know, um, you know, I don't even like that phrase. But God is, if you're married, God has put you together so that you can help refine one another and mature one another as God leads you because God put that covenant together. He designed it. He designed it to, for those, those pieces to rub against each other. It's why we're different. It's, it's essentially why male and female, they were created. There's differences, some natural differences, and they rub each other a little bit differently and therefore create this tension in a relationship that brings about the best in both. That's how it ought to work. And yet in marriage, we try to avoid that stress, don't we? I'll just sweep it under the rug if I can. It's much better there. Students, to press forward and do your best, to not give up. I've seen people give up on school and go, it's too hard. I want to tell you that adulting is harder. If you go, I don't believe you, you will. <laughs> it just is. And, and it's funny because it, it's funny who you hear that from. Um, you know, we've, we've got two kids. And I, excuse me for a second. We've got, we've got two kids and um, one of them is 30. And, um, and he's, I don't know, he's been to like five colleges. So, so he understands. Um. So he's, he's been to that, and it's not because he has a degree from each one of them either. It's, he's still working on the degree part. Um, but he's going through that, and then and he just lost his job. So he's going through stuff, and he's married and has a cat. Um, so... So, um, so, that, so that's one. That's, that's one child. And then my other one is 26. That's Becca. She, you've probably seen her around like a 13-year-old. Um, but, and, and it's a good thing. It's, it's okay. She'll love it when she's 60. And, um, but, but she called the other day, and, and she got her bill from UNC because she went to the hospital when she was here. What was that, Neil? <laughs> um, she got her bill. And, um, and it came in, and she's working through some of that. And she goes, and she, she told her mom, she said, um, Mom, I've, I've worked through the bill. I think I can pay this off. And then, then the phrase was, adulting is hard. <laughs> so she's 26. She's not married. She, she, hasn't, she hasn't run across the harder stuff yet. And yet she thinks it's hard. Life is hard. Adulting is hard. Don't quit. Don't give up on what God is calling you to just because it looks difficult. The most difficult things you will go through may be the things that God is going to use to refine you to be a better witness for Him. 
and a better influence on the culture around you. You know what? Most everybody from this, this aisle over here, over here, they're all going to die before you. If track, no offense, it's just the way it works. If you're older, you're likely you will die before they will. And you have so much influence to, to come. Don't give up on what God's calling you to do and how God's leading your life. Guys, don't, when we start looking at this, fresh starts may be, may be great to look at from the outside, but when it comes right down to it, God may be taking us through difficult circumstances to grow us and stretch us. Same thing is tr- true with parents. Keep seeking the Lord and lean into Him for wisdom. Don't give up and say, I'll be a hands-off parent. Or, or I just need to be their friend. Get over that. Because the, the friend that you have that's a teenager, if that's the only relationship you have with them, will be your enemy when they become an adult because they won't trust you. If you only tell them what they want to hear, and you may go, I disagree with that. That's because you want to hear what you want to hear, right? No, you need to hear hard stuff. And sometimes that comes in a parent being a parent. It's difficult. Difficult situations and difficult circumstances. All these play into what the exiles that Peter was writing to. All of those kind of circumstances still existed for this group of people he writes to. Don't think because, oh, they're Christians and they moved out because of persecution. Oh, life will be grand if we just move over here. It did not work like that. Peter was addressing a normal people that have moved. And on top of the move and everything else that's going around, they were being persecuted by a government that did not like like them and was blaming them for disruption within the empire. Their life was cruddy. I know that's probably not in the dictionary anywhere, but it was. And they needed to rally around each other. They had watched their friends die, as well as their dreams and desires, as they moved away from their homes into this new land. And Peter was addressing them and saying, find your identity in Christ. Start there. Peter writes of this living hope. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Unfading. When I read that, I think back to what Peter said and what he did. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, this is what he writes. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, this is post-resurrection, post-Pentecost. So, so Peter is, is emboldened because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know, this man delivered over to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, hear that, because what they could have heard was, we're responsible for this, and God had nothing to do with it. No, Peter's saying, God had everything to do with it. He knew this was going to happen. Don't miss that. 
He says, over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put them to death. So although you did this, God knew it. God predetermined that that's the way the sacrifice would be made. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Power of death is one thing. But if you can't hold the power of death, which is a pretty powerful thing, if that has no power over you, isn't that a great place to be? People fear death. And I don't know anybody in here who goes, yeah, man, I can't just wait to die. Now, most of us have this, this natural yearning to be alive. Although it may be difficult, we have a natural yearning to be alive. But when faced with it, when we come to the end of our time here on earth, it is super good to know that we belong to Jesus Christ and we know where we're going. There's a peace that's like no any, like, not like any other peace. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ had not occurred, then the reason for their hope was ill-placed. Jesus becomes their living hope. And it's through the resurrection. And remember that Peter and John were the first to the tomb, right? So, So he understands this whole idea of resurrection and the power piece of this. So let's get to... Get to our three points this morning. First, when a living hope through the resurrection provides an everlasting inheritance. An everlasting inheritance. So when does an inheritance take effect? Well, if you're the younger brother, then it could take effect, I guess, when you request it. It'd be a Luke 15 thing. But normally it happens upon somebody's death. You get an inheritance. It's... The, it's, it's related to the benefactor. When the benefactor dies, that which was his is passed on to somebody else. When my dad died, um, his will specifically said that everything that he owned became the property of myself and my brother. <coughs> it's, it's, it was something that was a forethought for my dad prior to his way. It was an earthly inheritance. Let me tell you how an earthly inheritance works. It's defined in terms of wealth. And so it could be $5. It could be debt. It could be a million dollars. There's a, there's a wide range in there, but it's passed on. It's defined in terms of wealth. And if there's anything on the posi- of the positive nature, it is spendable. It is up for discretion. It also fades when it is spent. I've watched from two different angles in my family. When the inheritance is spent, it's spent. It's hard to retrieve. The example would be the prodigal son. He received it and then he squandered it. Luke 15, 13. Not many days later, it's after he had gotten the inheritance. The younger son gathered all he had 
took a journey to a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. Very simple. What you receive as an earthly inheritance can be spent in a short amount of time or a long amount of time, but it is your choice. It is different. An eternal perspective or an eternal inheritance. This is the way it reads in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. Because I think Stephen understood the difference between earthly and heavenly inheritance. Something that is eternal versus temporal. Acts 7, 54 through 56, and I know 55 is the only verse you have on the screen, but it says in verse 54, now when they heard this, and he was talking about what, the, what they had done, and it was essentially his testimony about Jesus Christ and trusting him. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, and standing beside, and, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the hand of God, at the right hand of God. Stephen understood what it was to move from anything earthly to something that was eternal. And as he looked into heaven, he said, What awaits me is far greater than what I'm leaving behind. And so we think about an eternal inheritance. We have to put the, the circumstances of life into perspective. Paul writes it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the, at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. See, heaven's inheritance is imperishable, undefiled. It won't lose its luster. It's not like a new car that slowly fades over time. It is, it is reserved. It is set aside. Essentially, it's in a trust for you. So those that have accepted Christ as their Savior have an inheritance that is in a trust awaiting your arrival in heaven. It's the idea that I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. God has worked that out for us to have an eternal inheritance. The second thing is an extraordinary, extraordinary protection. Look what it says. It says, kept, for, kept in heaven for you, in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's by God's power. So when is God powerless? Can God take care of this? I think God can. There's nothing that would hold God back or restrain God from taking care of our salvation, which was secured through Jesus Christ. The hard thing is, our lack of understanding or the feeling that the circumstances that we're going through as we look forward to our inheritance are difficult and seemingly unfair. It's where we place God in that, in that box that says, God, you're being unfair to me. When God says, no, I'm being perfectly fair, I'm getting you ready. I provided your salvation and I love you. 
It's by God's power and it's by faith. And the basis of our faith can be distorted and can be swayed. And that's why the writer of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And so when we go through life, it comes with temptations and trials and heartache and headache. Peter's audience would have been familiar with that. So he reminds them of their eternity, but the protection that's available for that salvation. Um, growing up in Pittsburgh and living in Cleveland for a short time, it's where I learned to drive. And, and my dad, you know, he, he told me about anticipation. That was one of the things. But when you live there, the other thing that you learn to do is you learn to avoid potholes. It's just part of life. There, there's no such thing as a straight shot down a road there. It, it is more like a long and winding road, if you will. Um, but, but we'd be going down the road, and I would hit a pothole, and he said, didn't you see that? I was like, see what? That thing that just rattled the car to death. Did you not see that? And I was like, I guess not. And, and so I learned growing up to avoid those at all costs. Well, there's a road here in town, and I'm not going to name it in case you have any responsibility for it, but there, there's a road here in town that doesn't necessarily have potholes, but it's got manhole covers. And you're going, I don't know what road that is. All the way down the stinking road. And, um, and I can avoid them if I see them. But the other day I was coming home at, at a certain time of the day and there were shadows over the road and it seemed like every single one of those manhole covers was in a shadow. And that's exactly like life is. All the, the difficult, sometimes those trials come as manhole covers in the middle of the road and we don't see them because they're in the shadow. We get blindsided by things that come into our life and then we go, God, where are you? And the fact is, if our identity is wrapped up in Christ, even if we don't see that circumstance come, we can turn to God and say, God, would you help me through this? It starts with identity and moves into the applied grace in our life to make it through the trial or the circumstance. Because on the, on the backside of that, it's smooth. But it means that we might have to go through it. We can be tempted to turn from God. We can be tempted to allow bitterness to take foothold or take control of our life. Some have even abandoned their faith because the trials and circumstances were too great. Or we can dwell in insecurity and anxiety. Those are our options. When we face the potholes, we can go that direction. But Peter describes this as temporary. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hear what he says. It's temporary. It's not going to last. And you may be in here and going, the trial and circumstance that I'm in has lasted way longer than I wanted, wanted it to. I get that. Been there, done that 
some probably will do it again. And I don't like it any more than you do. But what is God trying to do in the midst of that? What is He trying to refine in your life? This, this word, now for a little while, the, the word in the Greek, really means to be in suspension. Just kind of hang in there. It's temporary. We can still rejoice. Not because we're going through the trials, but because God is doing something in the midst of the trials. Think about somebody that is, that is disabled. Um, our children's ministry is doing something through Awana called Wheels for the World. And um, it's, it's Johnny Erickson Tata's ministry, and they've been collecting money for, for wheelchairs and taking donations of wheelchairs and things like that to, to ship off to this particular ministry. And what they do is they accept them, refurbish them a little bit through um, a prison ministry that works on them, and then they distribute them to children and adults that have need. It's a great ministry. And, and there was um, one young lady that's a part of our church, not here this morning, but related to folks in our church. Grandparents are here this morning. And um, she understood this. And it's not because she's in a wheelchair. But she understands the need of people that are disabled and have that require this kind of, this kind of help. And so, um, in a particular event, in their family, she posed the need. Now, the goal in children's ministry, and I'm not really even sure what the, the total goal is. Do you, do you know, Wayne? Um, but it, it, it pretty significant goal for children's ministry. I mean, you're talking kids. I mean, it's not like they have salaries, right? At least most of them. Um, but she posed this and in that collected $300 for this. You say, well, that's not that much. Oh, no, that's big. That's really big. Because I think the, the expectation is if a child brings in five or ten bucks, it's big. But here's a child who understood it and presented the need to some adults and collected an amount of money and turned in $300. meeting a temporary need with the hopes that there'll be an understanding of what an eternal inheritance looks like. T.W. Hunt wrote this, Suffering exposes us to the reality of ultimate worth. The highest joy in suffering is that through it, we become conformed to Jesus' character. See, trial brings choice. Third point this morning is expanding faith. It leads us to an expanding faith, trusting a God that you cannot see. Look what it says in verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. They trusted a God that provided 
love through the, through the person of Jesus Christ and the hope that comes through the resurrection. And the verses that follow that says that the prophets looked forward to this and were studying it and they looked forward to the Messiah coming and giving his life. But they could only realize part. We get to look back and say, God accomplished exactly what he promised through the prophets. So God seems to be a faithful God. Therefore, you, as exiles in a land in which you're not familiar, going through trials and circumstances you despise, (laughs) although you're going through that, understand you can look back at something that has been accomplished and realize that there is a faithful God. And then you can look forward to the day when the salvation of your souls because of Jesus Christ is realized and you spend eternity with Him in heaven. Your friends that were burned at the stake under Nero's rule or were put in the Colosseum and eaten by, eaten by wild beasts, eaten by lions, they're experiencing the joy of heaven because they trusted Christ. You're going through this difficulty and trial in a temporary basis, but look forward because God is faithful. Don't discount the fact that God is still in control. But he wants to accomplish something in you. And so what is God doing in you? And what does he want to accomplish in you? Well, if we went around the room, just started over here and worked our way around, finished over here, what does God want to accomplish in you? That's kind of a hard question, isn't it? Some of you are going, I think God wants to wants me to grow in my patience. Bless your heart. You know not to pray for that, right? Because that just means you're going to be pressed on that. I'm not telling you not to pray for it. It's It's a good thing to have patience. It's real good. But But what does God want to do in you? What is he working through in your life that your current circumstances are leading you to be refined in? And how much are you pushing back on God? If we're going to realize the reason to rejoice through the hope of the resurrection, we may have to adjust how we're currently experiencing or will endure the circumstances that we are surrounded with. See, we're used to doing things a certain way, aren't we? Many of you are used to sitting in the same spot every Sunday. I talked to somebody this morning, and we talked exactly about that. And can I tell them why? Okay, good. I have permission now. Um, but we were talking about, and they moved seats. They said we needed to move to the end of the row so we can make a quick escape if conviction is too heavy. <laughs> Seem reasonable. Then we talked about me not having a way of escape, and, and we figured it out. The way, the way I do that is I ask somebody else to pray, and I dart out the back door. You know, it's, it's um, you know, there are other families that move around on a regular basis, but most of us are used to sitting in the same spots. Yeah, and some of you have sat in the same spot long enough, you don't even know that somebody has another side to their face. <laughs> we, we talk about this muscle memory. You know, we, we use that in sports to train somebody. It's why those 
that practice enough free throws make free throws. It's muscle memory, you know? It's muscle memory. Those that have trouble with that probably hadn't practiced it enough. And, you know, you're going, oh, wish he'd quit talking about that. I want to tell you, muscle memory is a big deal. Let me, let me tell you how this works. In my house, you know, we had um, some if gathering the last couple days with some, some folks. And um, so, they're, so I was essentially kicked out of the house for, for some hours. And, um, and Deb did some straightening up getting ready for if gathering. And so she went into our restroom. She moved some things around. And um, there's a toothbrush holder about right there. And in, in moving things around, I don't know exactly what happened, but yesterday I was getting ready, and I reached over, grabbed the toothbrush that I normally grab from the same spot that my muscle memory took me to, put it in my mouth, and, and pulled it out, went to put it back. I went, oops, that, that's going back to the wrong spot. And I realized I had picked up her toothbrush. Yeah, you may say it's gross, but I kiss her, and we swap spit all the time. So, <laughs> it's, it's okay, we're married, we're married. So, so I, I put it back. I, I, she's got a new one now, she didn't have to u- keep using it. We weren't going to go that far. <laughs> so, but, but muscle, muscle memory took me back to that same spot that I was used to. Just reaching over the same spot. That happens all the time. It happens spiritually with us in that when we face difficult circumstances, we may go back to the same thing that we've been used to, and God may want us to approach something differently because He's growing us and maturing us. We may need to adjust where it takes us. Now, the tendency is going to be to do it like that again, and we have to make a conscious effort to repent and realign with what God has for us. And in so doing, surrender our life new each time until the memory, the muscle memory is replaced with what God has for us. And then we start doing that on a regular basis and see how our faith gets stretched as we're subjected to what God has for our lives. Exiles were in a spot that they needed to understand the, the power of the hope that is in Christ. But they were being called to be proof of the resurrection. In an unfamiliar territory with unfamiliar people. And everybody was watching them. How you, exile, or how are you going to respond to this move? in this pressing in of persecution? How are you going to respond to the difficult circumstances that are in your life? And I would say that there is a world that does not know Jesus Christ that is watching us to see how we will respond to life. They're looking for a living proof of a living hope. What will they see? Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. 